Welcome to the U.S. Fire Journal Podcast. We offer views and opinions on the fire service around the world with no topic too tough to handle. Visit us at usfirejournal.com for all your fire service information. Now, here's your host, Jay. Good morning and welcome in to the podcast. I am Jay and today is August the 20th. It is 2021. Welcome into the to this episode and I want to start off by talking a little bit about uh, the website usfirejournal.com. Launched it about I guess about a month ago and uh, um, did a soft launch and, and now have uh, have relaunched it as the major launch uh, along with the podcast. Um, the website's updated three days a week. Uh, starting today, we'll be doing four podcasts per week. And also the newsletter, which you can find um, and uh, subscribe to if you wish. Not a lot of material being sent out on it. Not going to spam your inbox with a whole lot of material, but some short, sweet training things and, and maybe some information you didn't know or information you do know. And we're just reiterating that information. I want to talk today about something that occurred just a little over, I guess, about 10 months ago, um, maybe a year. Um, on another podcast I was doing at the time, I shared the story that there was a guy who, um, for all the world, uh, if you talk to him, he's the, he, he's the gift to firefighting, uh, the gift to everything, actually, and a very small, small person uh, in real life. And uh, quite an egotist, probably a malignant narcissist as well. I think most people agree with that. But at any rate, none of that's uh, germane to the topic. What is germane is uh, making uh, fun of departments that have full staffing. You know the person. You know the type person. They think that because uh, they do it, uh, because they're forced to do it with one or two people on an engine, that, that... that's okay, and and they will people like him will steadfastly argue that you know what we don't need extra people, and so when when I started talking about that, people came out of the woodwork to share stories about it, and um, it it angered me, uh, and I, I sent it out to other people to say hey you know what what do you think am I being a little bit uh, over the top here and everyone I sent it out to is like no no see this is the problem with firefighting is that we have firefighters who are our own worst enemies well you know I called it um, you know sort of clown car antics and that's what this person was pointing out there was a department nearby that has full staffing um, and it's it's a department that responds to to quite a few calls and and uh, they have that that full staffing through uh, years and years of of uh, trial and uh, you know uh, trial under fire and so they do they have adequate staffing now, and this is the thing and this is the thing you can't tell to a to a clown is that you know here's the deal minimum staffing is barely above you know I mean it's it's slightly above adequate understand it's never called great staffing it's never called maximum staffing it's called minimum and that's because people from around the country indeed around the world who 
go to a lot of fires and who have gone to a lot of fires throughout history have determined that in order to adequately address issues on the fire ground and elsewhere, you need this minimum number of people. And understand again and think about this. Minimum, not maximum, not above average, but barely adequate. And so this person who, as I said, very full of themselves, um, was making fun of this department and about how, where do you put all those people? You know, if somebody arrives with four people on an engine, what do you do with them? Well, you know, there's a way that you deal with people like that. There's a way you used to deal with people like that. You can't do it anymore, uh, in part because of the type of society we live in now. But it, it did anger me because uh, for a very long time, uh, many of us have been advocating uh, minimum staffing. And this clown decides that, that in front of other firefighters, especially young firefighters who don't know any better, uh, to run his mouth. Well, it turns out that he's about as good at firefighting as, as most people expect. It has not impressed anyone. Um, but then never impressed anyone before unless the only people you ever impress with, with people like that are people who don't know any better. And so when you're talking about an issue that relates to the entire fire service, staffing, for example, people have to watch what they're saying. They really do. Um, it sets them up for failure, certainly. And it also evokes an attitude that is subpar in its, its thinking. I mean, it's just pathetic that people think this. Um, and again, there are people out there who do. I have never met anyone worth two cents at firefighting who declared, uh, you know, in front of other people that, man, we just have too many people. No one should ever say that. And I'll tell you, it is part and parcel of, of ego and ignorance. It's ego and ignorance. And these people like this clown, they're, they're egotistical but they're also ignorant. And frankly, not much can change their mind. It's, and and it's, it's just pathetic. And so don't be a part of the circus. You know, don't, don't be a part of that. If you hear somebody saying that, whatever you do, if you have an ounce of, of concern or care for the job that you do, don't allow them to get away with that. I'm not saying confront them. Don't confront the narcissist because the narcissist in their very little mind, that's what they want. They want to be confronted. Uh, but they're also very scared. They're frightened inside. And so be wary around people like that. But don't let the comment go. Find the people the comment was made to and, and correct them. Say, look, you know what? This person's a clown. And, and I'll say this about this one clown in particular. Everyone knows, oh, let me back up. 99% of the people know he's a clown. There are those 1% who don't, but then they're easily led anyway. So look, let's face it. Staffing is, is the difference between lives saved and lives lost. Minimum staffing is an absolute and undeniable uh piece of firefighting that has to be protected at all costs. You know, 
there are ways that departments are forced to operate. If you're in a department that forces you to operate below minimum staffing, well, all I can say is fight to, fight to increase that staffing. Now, here's something else, and, and this is a bureaucrat's uh, way of tricking politicians, split staffing, right? You say, yeah, you know what? We have four people. We're going to split them among three engines. You know, we're we've got three engines. We're going to put one. We're going to put, you know, one on one engine, one on the other, and then we're going to put the officer and a driver on the third engine. And so, therefore, we're responding three engines fully staffed. No, you're not. No, no, you're not. You are not doing anything of the sort. What you've done is you've probably bullied your department into believing that this is the only way it's going to work, and you're trying to, to fool politicians. Um, and, and let's face it, politicians, they don't know everything about every department. It's impossible to know everything. You know, if you're a, if you're a councilman, you can't know everything about the parks department, police department, fire department. It's just too much to know. Um, but it is a way of tricking them. And it's deceitful in every way. And typically, the people who are trying to force this vision, you know, of let's split staff and call it full staffing, a lot of times are people who have zero, zero operational experience. They are paperwork people. That's who they are. That's what they, they know in life. And for all the world, that's the most important thing. And uh, look, paperwork has to be done. No one denies that. I, I certainly would never deny it. You need people to do paperwork. What you don't need are people whose only experience is in the paperwork to then turn around and tell people, no, this is adequate. No, it isn't. No. Split staffing ends up being something like this. You know, you're, take your three engines there. You know, you got two on one, one on one, one on the other, and you say, oh, we got four person minimum staffing. What happens if those two engines get blocked by a train, but, the one, but one engine gets through and gets to the fire? See, this is what happens. And almost no one will comment on it because they don't know any better. But you as a firefighter should know better. You as a firefighter should be able to say, you know what? This is going to get me killed or injured. And it's also, more importantly, it's going to kill civilians. And it's going to cause larger property loss. Insurance companies love that. Uh, I mean, they, they really love it. Um, and it, it looks great for your community when you're constantly losing structures. Okay, When you're constantly losing them because you don't have enough people. And some people, I hear it. And it, it's infuriating. And a fire chief will say, man, it was a great job stopping that fire last night, you know. And you look at it and you look at what happened and you go, you know, the fire really was the fire went out. It got tired and it decided I have had enough. And you know, these people are obviously not making any any headway because guess what? Don't have enough people. So I'm going to go out. And and while that may seem sarcastic and, and it is um, a lot of times, that's exactly what happens. The fire finally just goes out. And you, meanwhile, you have people, you have firefighters who are beat down. They are. And you'll hear people say now, well, you know, we don't really fight that many fires. Yes, and what does that mean? That means that every fire that you do fight, you have to be 100%. There is no, well, we'll make it up on the next one if you're getting five or six fires a year. There's no makeup. What are you going to do? You're going to do great on the next one? Every one is every fire in a scenario like that is a Super Bowl. Every fire. Now, places that are busy, 
yes, every fire is important. Every fire is certainly the playoffs, but you get opportunities to get better. This is what bureaucrats don't understand. This is what people who think that just because you're hired and you got a patch that you know what you're doing. And these people are constantly making tremendous mistakes with respect to everything they do. They are. Split staffing, again, is a bureaucrat's, a bureaucrat's way of tricking politicians and, and, to a law, and to a smaller degree, certain firefighters. Some firefighters are going to go, well, yeah, that's the way it is. Right. So when there's a line of duty death, when there's a massive injury, when, when somebody is hurt or otherwise, don't, don't come back then and say, well, you know, if we'd have had more people. No. This is the difference between people who sit and let things happen to them and people who decide, you know what, I'm not sure what I can do right now, but I'm going to start writing this stuff down. I'm going to start keeping notes. It's important to be informed no matter what level of the fire department you're at. Typically, in some departments, the higher up you go, that's when the curtain gets drawn across everything. You get a fire chief or or command staff, they only know what's going on at headquarters. That's all they know because they don't understand what goes on elsewhere. So you take the clown college approach and you, you, you marry it with the bureaucrats and what do you end up with a fire department in name only and that's dangerous folks it's very dangerous and if you're part of it and and you willingly go along with it um, that obviously it's up to you but again if you want to be smart and proactive about it start trying to figure out things you can do to at some point address these wrongs because they are wrong period. You know, uh, it's, of course, it's Friday and Friday's for questions, but, and I want to get to those, but uh, one thing I do want to talk about, I want to talk about uh, fire apparatus. Um, You know, there are people out there that say, yeah, you know what, I'd rather have bad apparatus with good people than good apparatus with bad people. And I have to tell you, I'm one of those people. I'd rather have adequately educated firefighters with experience than the best fire trucks in the world. Uh, simply because good people can take a bad piece of equipment and make it work. Bad people can't do anything other than, you know, scare people around them. So who builds your apparatus? Sure, it matters. It it does matter. It matters because you want something that's durable. You know, um, does, does the amount of water matter? Sure, sure it does. What do you need for your area? You know, what can bridges hold? Um, do you have old infrastructure? Is it, is it a fairly suburban or, or rural area? All these sorts of things go into thinking and specking a fire truck. Um, but for those people who say it doesn't matter who builds it, here's where you're wrong. Every piece of fire apparatus is an investment. And, and citizens invest money into that through taxes. So what's the return on their investment? You know, if you're going to go out and you're going to buy the cheapest rig possible just so you can say, well, look, I'm saving money, you're an idiot. I mean, you are. If you go out and you buy an inexpensive rig because that's all you can afford, make it happen. You got to do it. That's the way it works. But again, who build it? Who builds it? It matters. Who builds your air packs? It matters. Do you want, you know, 
do you want Uncle Joe's air packs from from down in the holler uh, that you know may or may not work? And I don't know, maybe Uncle Joe makes great air packs, but I doubt it. No, you want something that has stood the test of time, but it also has to be within your purchase price in that area. Again, though, competent fire chiefs, competent command staff, always search for the best for their firefighters, not just what a salesman is trying to pitch them. So remember that. And again, I can't say this enough. Durability matters. How durable is it? You know, uh, how many repairs are required? Can firefighters operate it? Uh, Can they operate it in, you know, zero visibility? Is it intuitive? And will it save their lives? Those are things that all these questions have to be answered. So let's go to questions and answers for the last part of the podcast. Uh, You can send questions to editor at usfirejournal.com. I received about 80 emails. And what I'm doing, I'm just going to take like the first 8 or 10, no matter what they are, and just... uh, and just answer those questions. Uh, I will paraphrase some of these because some of them are pretty long. Uh, first question, um, leather or plastic? Are you the guy that likes uh, tactical Tupperware, or do you like uh, the helmets and tradition? Uh, my answer to that is that I want the best helmet uh, available to uh, protect the noggin, right? Um, a helmet is not a showpiece, um, but neither is it just a piece of plastic to throw on your head. Um, leather certainly has its redeeming qualities. And uh, I wore leather helmets, and I like leather helmets. Um, I wore plastic helmets, and there are some that, that are fine with me because they're lightweight. Ultimately, leather or plastic comes down to what does your department buy do they allow you to buy your own helmet? And uh, what are the differences? So this is where you have to use your own judgment. You know, it's not so much what I think or what anyone who writes or does a podcast thinks. Um, ultimately, you have to come down to uh, what can you do? Because if you get issued a plastic helmet, um, and I say plastic, you know what I mean. If you get issued one, and you're not allowed to change it, well, there you go. Your answer's there. Um, But uh, for me, I would love a lighter weight leather helmet. The only thing about leather is the weight. Um, But again, your mileage may vary. Um, This is from a 15-year-old. He says, uh, why don't fire departments just get the largest pump every time they buy apparatus? Doesn't it make sense? certainly on the surface it might appear that way, but there's a couple things where reality trumps romance in the fire service. Um, every department has has uh, a different budget. Um, every rig you purchase, it you know, you have to think about things such as size, weight, um, you know, what what does your department use? What is the future use of this rig? Buying the, quote, largest pump every single time, end quote, um, it, it matters if you're in an industrial fire brigade. Um, it matters if, if your department covers a lot of, of chemical plants and uh, refineries, things like that. Um, but typically, we're talking about cost. So if you have 54 engines and 27 ladders, 
you're not going to go out and buy the 54 most expensive, largest, biggest pumps ever on 50. It's just cost prohibitive. Also, it wouldn't make sense. You know, what type of fires do you fight? What type of fires do you not fight? (laughs) That's also important. Um, So no, getting the largest pump every time doesn't make sense in the real world. It just doesn't. Sorry. Um, Here's another one. Uh, Our department is debating getting uh, dogs back on rigs. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. Um, You know, I was in a department where we had dogs. Um, We had Dalmatians. Uh, One of our Dalmatians ended up on the cover of a major magazine uh, back in the early 80s. And and, uh, she's a great dog. I mean, she was awesome. Um, she'd get up, you know, if we got a call, she'd get up on the engine mount. It was a Mac, uh, in this case, 77 Mac CF 600. And next door in our, in the next door station, we were a double company with eight guys. Um, that was a 72 Ford, uh, 72, 72 Mac. Ours was a 77 Mac, but she'd get up on the engine mount and on the doghouse and ride there. Um, but here's the thing. The world has changed. There are liability concerns, obviously, with people being bitten. And um, there are also animal activists out there who the first time they saw that dog sliding on that doghouse on the box in the back, uh, they'd flip out because they'd say, oh, the dog needs to be protected by a 12-point solid harness with a parachute assembly. And maybe they're right. I don't know. What I do know is that the dogs that I was able to ride with uh, they were absolutely taken better care of than most people. Um, you know, the dogs received a ton of attention. They were never alone. Uh, they were fed. In fact, we probably fed a little too well. Um, we didn't have these so-called special diets for dogs and cats back then. But uh, the dog was loved and beloved. Um, and when they died, it was, uh, it, it was tough on a lot of people. But, you know, why not dogs? It depends on your department. It depends really on your city. You know, what does city legal want? Um, if you get dogs back in the stations and back on the rigs, that's great. Um, with the enclosed cabs and air conditioning and, and all that, I, you know, I think it's awesome. Um, is it right for every city? Uh, that's up to each city, really. Uh, but for dogs, yeah, I love them uh, and still do. Uh, especially Dalmatians, and even though Dalmatians can be temperamental, um, they can be. They're, they're not the easiest dogs in the world, uh, but they are a lot of fun, uh, especially around the station. Another person said, yeah, our chief told us we could either go to Firehouse Expo or FDIC in 2022. What do you think? Well, I, you know, look, there are good people at both, um, and, and both of them, they want to you know, they want to educate firefighters. If I had one conference that I could attend every year without question, it'd be FDIC. Um, it's just, it's the granddaddy. It's, it's uh, fire engineering magazine is the standard bear. It's a gold standard. Um, doesn't mean that other expos aren't good. And there are smaller expos out there too. And uh, they don't mind not call them, you know, expos, but there's smaller fire conferences out there do a great job. Uh, a lot of them. Uh, the Andrew Fredericks training days, there are the North Florida Fire Expo, um, 
there's tons of them. Really, there are. Um, there's one in Pensacola, Florida. Can't remember the name of it. Um, there's several there, actually. Um, there are several in Texas that are outstanding. So, yeah, there are good ones all over the country. So it's better to attend one than to attend none. That's the key. The one you're going to can be a good, can be a, a, a really good experience. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Um, our probationary firefighters are asking about books to read for probies. was wondering if you had any suggestions. Um, yeah, I do. You know, and, and it might be, some people might think it's a little bit too complicated for probationary firefighters, but, but I think Safety and Survival on the Fire Ground, Vince Dunn's a great book to give to a probationary firefighter because it's something they can use throughout the next 20, 25 years. Um, principally because it's written by a giant in the field, Vincent Dunn. It's also, to me, easy to read, and it's not the thickest book in the world, but there is a lot of wisdom contained within its pages. If, if uh, I had the opportunity, I would buy those books to give to every probie firefighter. I, I just think it's a great book for it. If you want something specific for probies, how to behave, uh, I haven't really looked into that too much, that kind of thing, you know, how to acclimate themselves and all that. But uh, I do believe that, that something like uh, Safety and Survival on the Fire Ground is a, is a good way to start them off. Um, it's not part of safety culture that nowadays is really getting hammered, and for good reasons. But it is something that, that comes from someone who spent a lot of time uh, doing the job in in one of the busiest periods of firefighting in history, the war years in in uh, in New York, um, and Vince Dunn. I don't care where you are, whether it's a you're the one person on your department or ten thousand. Um, he appeals to everyone simply because he spits facts and uh, he knows about what he's talking about. Uh, another question: uh, Our department has hired a new training officer and he sent out to us a memo asking how much training per day do we want to do? Um, well, uh, you know, he has a uh, training officer. There are minimum requirements that are usually set by the state and that, uh, maybe your department goes above those. Um, but, but here's the thing, how much training per day? Well, you can sit guys in front of a computer and have them do something on there, and maybe they're going to retain a quarter of it. Maybe on a great day. Um, Hands-on training is among the best. Now I know all the spreadsheet warriors out there, and uh, you know PowerPoint warriors, I should say. They're going to be like, "What? No! First, you have to teach everybody the 720 steps to reaching up and grabbing a nozzle." And, and, okay, that's fine. Everybody has their own way. But I line up with the people who say that, you know, PowerPoints aside, let's get people uh, putting hands on. Let's put them in scenarios. Let's take something and show them that. And then let's start focusing on the real deal when things go wrong. Um, that's where you earn your money. That's where you earn your reputation is when things go wrong. You know, I'll be honest, you could teach anyone to open the bail of a nozzle. You can. That's not hard. Um, but what happens when that person has 
uh, fallen three feet and the nozzles underneath them and they need to get water on the fire. If you can do the difficult stuff, the easy stuff is second nature. So it's, do you want to train somebody in five steps or train somebody on that third, fourth, fifth step that makes the first and second step? I mean, let's face it, they've got it. If you can do something when things aren't going well, when things are going well, it's a breeze. However, if you only teach someone the very, like, oh no, you have to have steps one through 720, if they get to step 549 and something's wrong, they're going to shit the bed. It's what's going to happen. And there's a huge difference um, in people who know what to do when things are going bad and the people who have to have things a certain way. And uh, that's, by the way, I advocate this, but I wasn't the first one to advocate it, not even in the top thousand. I've heard it throughout my military training. I heard it as a firefighter. I heard it as a fire marshal. I heard it about budgets. I heard, you name it, that's the way the best people uh, in the world want to train people. Obviously, your bureaucrat trainers, the people who say, well, all right, here's what we're going to have to do, guys. Um, here's how you breathe in. And here's steps one through 200. Make no mistake. There are reasons to learn things in steps. There are very good reasons. And people should have a background in it. No question. But ultimately, the way you find out what somebody knows is not testing them on, on constant steps one through four. It's about putting them in situations where steps two and three might not appear to them to be a good idea or where they can't reach something. It's the difference, honestly, between average and good to great, period. And uh, yes, you need to know the basics. But don't forget this. When people talk about the basics, we're not talking about just, okay, breathe in. Okay, now breathe out. No, we can talk about air. We can talk about what it's like to lose air, how to get air back. All of those things, they slide, they don't slide over the basics, they envelop the basics. It's much easier to do the basics when you know how to do it when it's not perfect. That's going to do it for today. We will be back for a Saturday podcast tomorrow. And until then, whatever you do, stay safe.